Good morning. All right, kiddos, off you go. Uh, and as they go, we're reminded, as Chris just prayed, that they're going to be discipled in the gospel of the kingdom. Thank you for those of you like Dallas that are going to do that. Grateful for each of you. Yes. All right. If I've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my joy and privilege to open up the Bible and teach it to you. In that keeping, as we'll see, in that tradition of Christ who taught and preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. Let's pray together briefly as we anticipate his word. Father, again, we do thank you for the privilege of prayer purchased by the blood of Christ. And thank you for the word that comes to us, that clarifies the fact that the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. And so now we pray to you, God, that you would send more laborers out. Use this sermon to do just that. Amen. Well, friends, my task this morning is a delicate one because we're going to be talking about prayer and evangelism. And it's delicate because most pastors know that those two things are very easy to motivate from guilt. How's your prayer life? All right. Repent. Start praying, right? Thus the delicacy. And so what I'm going to endeavor to do by the grace of God is to motivate us towards prayer and evangelism, not from guilt, but from compassion and for glory. I'm going to try to do that. Pray for me and towards that end. Motivate us from compassion to everlasting glory. That's the task. And the reason that's the task, guys, is because that's the heart of God. The heart of the God of prayer and evangelism is not a God who motivates us into the harvest by guilt, but instead he motivates us by gain. God is a giving God. He's overflowing. He doesn't need anything. And so he motivates into these things because of gain, because he's a giving God. In fact, uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this a bit in his fictional tale called The Screwtape Letters, where he imagines two demons talking to one another. And, uh, and at one point, one demon is instructing the other demon about the differences between their mission, the devil's mission, and God's mission. And the devil, in this case, and this demon, I should say, accurately describes God in this way. He says, we, that's the devil, we, we want cattle who can finally become food. He, God, wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He, God, wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. So friends, what I intend to show us this morning is that the kingdom of heaven is like a harvest. The laborers are few that desire to go out to get the fruit of the gospel. And God graciously sends them, not as reluctant hired hands, but as compassionate servants that are motivated by the fullness of the joy that comes in the gospel. Big idea this morning is that verse. It's long. I'll say it twice, but you can read it. Verse 38. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. We're going to be in Matthew 9, verses 35 to 38. Big idea. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers, the laborers are few. Pray pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. That's the big idea. And so we find ourselves in the final week of this transition from uh, our study in the book of Kings 
Um, and so what, we're, what we've been trying to do is understand the nature of the kingdom of heaven that we currently reside in. We're no longer in that old covenant nature of the kingdom of heaven. And so what we've been seeing as we've been studying this the last few weeks, we've been seeing the kingdom of heaven, is what my definition, is the reign and rule of Christ. He's reigning over all and his rule is pressing out. And what we saw a few weeks back is that his kingdom, Christ's kingdom, is not of this world, not from this world. Uh, also, we saw that his kingdom is something that started small and then has grown large to eventually include all tribes, tongues, and nations. Then we saw last week that the kingdom of heaven is a treasure. It's a treasure hidden in the field. And now today we see that his kingdom is like a harvest. Matthew 9, verse 35 to 38 says as follows. This is God's word. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We'll ask a few questions here. The first one is this. What is Jesus doing in the earth? What is Jesus, the Son of God, sent into the world? What's he doing when he's on the earth? Well, this passage, I think, means to answer that in part. He's doing a lot of things, but here in this passage, we see him doing at least three things. He's going into all the cities and the villages, and he's teaching, preaching, and healing. Teaching, he's proclaiming, preaching, and healing. Teaching in their synagogues, preaching in their synagogues, and healing, it says, every disease and every affliction. And what is it he's teaching and preaching and healing about, we ask? Well, it says there in verse 35, the gospel of the kingdom. Now, gospel means good news. Kingdom is the rule of government. Therefore, with Christ as king, while he's on the earth, Jesus, we find him preaching, teaching, and healing in reference to the good news of a heavenly government there on the earth. And I want you to notice where Jesus is doing this. Again, we find him. He's doing this in all, in all these cities and villages. And you'll notice he's doing it in these cities and villages. It says there, in the synagogues. Now, when you think of synagogues, you can think of something somewhat similar to this, what we're doing right now. Um, may have had a building. Maybe it didn't have a building. But most importantly, it was the assembly of God's people gathered together to sing, to pray, and to listen to the word of God. Luke 4.16 tells us that it was Jesus' custom on the Sabbath to go to the synagogue. In other words, it was Jesus' custom, custom to prioritize the gathering of God's people to come together to sing, to pray, and to preach God's word together. And as it was for him, friends, so it should be for us all that love God. Not just because it reflects Jesus' example, though it does, and not only because it's commanded, though it is, but friends, we prioritize this gathering because we need to be reminded, don't we? We need to be refreshed by this gospel and its message of the kingdom every single week. But back to Jesus. I want you to notice that in this ministry, his ministry is fully orbed. Did you notice that? He's serving the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Or heart, I should say. Mind, it is the spirit too. Mind, heart, body, and spirit, we should say. And so the teaching aspect is instructing of the mind, of the mind. 
Jesus was going into all the cities and the villages trying to help them understand doctrine. Trying to help them understand sound doctrine. He's teaching, aiming at their heads. He wanted them to know and believe certain things and reject certain things. He taught, it says, the gospel of the kingdom. And by teaching, he meant to then form their minds around the truths of that kingdom. But he also, we see there, proclaimed in the, in the synagogues of all the cities and the villages around him the gospel of the kingdom. He's proclaiming it. He's preaching it. And so proclaiming or preaching is the work of pressing the truth of God down into the hearts of his people. That's what pre- preaching does. Pressing it down into the heart. So where teaching aims at the head, preaching aims at the heart. And so that's why, friends, this moment in the service every week is so important. That's why Protestant churches put pulpits in the middle of their gatherings. Because it's central in their life together. So that we would get that teaching and preaching. That we would understand the gospel of the kingdom with our minds. And then treasure those truths up in our hearts. And so where teaching might tell you, for instance, how to plant a tree and why fruit is good for your body. Preaching will tell you why a sweet and juicy peach will satisfy you on a hot summer's day. Where teaching might tell you that the sun, what the sun is and what the sun does and why you need it for vitamin D, so go out in the sun. Preaching will bring you to the mountaintop and show you the beauty of a sunset at dusk for the gladness of your soul. Jesus both taught and preached about the gospel of the kingdom. He aimed at heads and hearts. And beloved, so must we. We must make it our custom regularly to be sitting under the teaching of the good news of Christ's reign and rule. And we must be regularly be preached to about that good news of Christ's reign and rule. Because, beloved, we are preached to and taught every single day in our lives. Everywhere we're being taught. Everywhere we're being preached at. Therefore, let us regularly sit under the beams of God's word that we might thrive and live. But Jesus not only taught and proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. We read here also Jesus healed in keeping with the gospel of the kingdom. And so, in what way must we understand this? Well, friends, Jesus' healing ministry meant to be his sermon illustrations. That's what they were. His healing ministry meant to illustrate the teaching and the preaching ministry that he had. So, for instance, when he talked about the good news of a kingdom of heaven, the good news, that is, of sin being forgiven, life coming from death, He could heal a blind man, showing them that what such a kingdom would look like when sin was healed and atoned for. He stopped the bleeding of the woman or reform a a deformed hand or foot. He would cast out demons and bind up wounds and make them whole again. And when he did this alongside of his preaching and teaching ministry, we see the illustrations of what the kingdom of heaven will be like one day when it is consummated, when it is finished after having sin atoned for. And so his healing showed the power, the warmth, the beauty, the allure of the kingdom of heaven. We tend to think of Jesus' ministries, uh, healing ministry, as only to certify his divinity. And it did that. Of course, his healing ministry did certify his his, uh, divinity. But his healing ministry, we also sometimes think uh, his healing ministry certifies his message. And it does that, most importantly, as well. But it also illustrates the kingdom for which he came to establish. Three things there in the healing ministry. Three things. Certifying this healing ministry, certifying the Son of Man, certifying the Son of Man's message, and then illustrating that message. That's what these healings are doing. 
Thus the crowds would be drawn in, just as they would be today if somebody were doing that. And our relationship to the healing ministry as citizens of the kingdom of heaven today is a bit more complicated than the straightforward example of Christ in teaching and preaching. And the reason for that is because of those three reasons. Because in our context, here in Washington, D.C., in 2023, in our context, the the Messiah, his message, have been solidified in the establishment of gospel-preaching churches. Gospel-believing, that binding and loosing with the truth has come in and solidified in our region. Therefore, the healing ministries that are meant to verify, to certify, uh, aren't needed as much as they are in other places to certify and illustrate those kingdoms. So, for instance, we would expect, in other words, there to be more healing, more miraculous things to be happening. Say, for instance, in our brothers and sisters that are trying to plant a church amongst Bedini Kurds that don't have any gospel-believing church amongst their native land, native speakers. We might expect it more frequently in places like the region, in the mountain regions of Peru or in the jungles of Vietnam or in distant places in India where the gospel of the kingdom has not yet been established through the establishment of gospel-believing, gospel-harboring churches. And so we might expect to see healings attached to the preaching and the teaching of the gospel of the kingdom as it comes through missionaries that, has the, that have that true apostolic doctrine. We might expect it as it moves into those places for there to be these kind of miracles and healings to say, look, this is true. This really is heaven breaking into the earth. Sort of certify, verify, and illustrate those things. And yes, of course, these healings and things could happen here. I trust they do. I trust they've happened in this room to some people. But even when it does, friends, it never means, these healings are never means to adorn the teacher or the preacher. These healings mean to adorn the gospel of the kingdom of God. And more particularly, this healing means to adorn the king of that kingdom, Jesus the Christ. The one that is making all things new through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. These healings mean to illustrate the gospel, the kingdom, and its king, and adorn them. But it all begins here, as we read in Matthew 9, with Jesus going into all these cities and villages, not just the rich ones, not just the poor ones. All the cities, all the villages, every social class, every background, the marginalized and the privileged, all of them being taught and preached and uh, seen healing in keeping with the gospel of the kingdom, certifying that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, as Jesus taught helping to explain them a particular doctrine, helping them to treasure that up and then illustrating its beauty and soon consummation. But the next question we asked then was, what was Jesus' motive in this work? What's driving him to teach, to preach, to heal? Well, look at verse 36. There's your answer. Compassion. Compassion. Look at it. When he saw the crowds... He had compassion for them. Friends, this sentence seems to be like a cardiogram into the heart of Christ. This is like the beautiful picture, a beautiful illustration of what the Bible does. It gives us windows of divine interpretation into the heart of Christ. And what we see here in this passage is intoxicating. The Son of God sent into the world on a rescue mission from the Father's love is revealed to us as the one that sees crowds and his gut response is compassion. Tender love for these people in need. That's his gut response. We don't read in this passage that Jesus sees the crowds and is frustrated by all the work he has to do. 
We don't read that Jesus sees the crowds and sort of is angered at all of their sin. He does call them to repentance. That's part of his basic message. But that's not what we read here. We don't read that Jesus, the only Savior, sees the crowds and tries to get past them because he's on his way to a vacation. Doesn't want to have to deal with them. In fact, we actually read in the book of Mark the exact opposite. He's on his way to a retreat. He's on his way to a vacation of sorts, only to see the crowds and come back to them because he sees them as as sheep without a shepherd. We see Jesus' response to the crowds is compassion. And I wonder, friend, is this the Jesus that you believe? Is this the Jesus that you follow? This one, the one that sees the crowds and is moved by them. This is the real Jesus, the true Jesus, plain as can be. He was a savior that was compassionate towards the masses he saw and ministered to every day. And we ask the next question, why? Why was he so compassionate towards these crowds? We'll take a look at the text. Because they were harassed and helpless. They were needy, beaten down. Other translations say it like this. They were troubled and helpless, weary and worn out, distressed and downcast, weary and scattered, distressed and dejected, dispersed and scattered. The little Greek says faint and laid out. He was compassionate because he saw them as harassed and helpless. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion because he saw guys their situation. His gut response is tender love down deep for their helpless and harassed situation. He would have known their sin. I'm confident he would have called it out. But here, his instinct upon looking at them, maybe from a cup of water on a hot day when he looked at the masses, his instinct was compassion because he knew that while they were sinful, he saw that they were a people beaten down and broken in a broken world. He saw that they were broken people in a broken world who meant to image God. And it moved him. Like those deformities, he saw a people whose lives were twisted and turned. That they were vulnerable, tired, and distressed. The compassion of Jesus was issued because he saw the pains and the grievances of the crowds for what they were. And it moved him to have compassion. And friends, you should know that hasn't stopped. The Jesus of first century Palestine is still the Jesus of glory. Seated at the right hand of the Father, as he was then, so he is all the more now. He hasn't stopped seeing the crowds in all of the cities, in all of the villages of all of the world, looking at them, knowing them from heaven, and being moved by compassion. That is still true of him today. Beloved, Jesus knows our frame. He remembers that we are as dust. He knows that our days are like grass and we flourish like a flower of the field and the wind passes over and dies. He sees that. And yet his steadfast love goes out forever and ever. And all of these crowds and all of these villages in the world where people are broken down and tired and distressed, helpless and harassed. He sees, he knows, he remembers. He is moved by the sight of the helpless masses, by his compassion in all of the earth. He calls them, he calls us sheep without shepherds. Which is to say, poor animals without the guidance of a benevolent shepherd to lead them through the valley of the shadow of death into the green grasses 
where they might lie down next to streams of water. He sees in us a rudderless people, and it moves him. He sees in the world these crowds, this lack of direction and true sustenance, therefore are vulnerable to the schemes of the devil. He sees it. He knows that we are vulnerable to the passions of the flesh. He knows that we are vulnerable and helpless to a careless, cruel world. He knows that we need a compassionate shepherd to be guided towards the gospel of the kingdom of heaven as they, as we, are harassed and helpless by the kingdoms of the earth. Aren't we? He sees that in us. He knows that we are harassed and helpless by the kingdoms of the earth and all the different ways that they lie to us, the kingdoms of the earth, all the ways that they lead us to believe that somehow the resources come from compassion, for compassion, come from within and not from without in a benevolent Savior. He sees all the ways that the world encourages us to be sheep without a shepherd, to guide ourselves, telling us, convincing us that therein, apart from a benevolent Savior, is freedom. The ways the world tries to tell us that there is no transcendent God, that we are gods of our own, the captain of our souls, the masters of our own fate. Folks, that is foolishness of the highest order. Devilishness of the deeps to believe in such madness. In our imbibing the passions of our flesh and listening to the world, we are indeed helpless and harassed. We are not titans of our own industry. We can barely get out of bed and do whatever it is we need to do every day. Much less be our so-called authentic selves. No, the truth is, friends, we are sheep without a shepherd. Wandering about in a world, helpless, aimless, being wounded and wounding others. We need a shepherd to guide us into a flock to lead us to those streams of water where we might lie down. Christ, in Christ we have direction. He is still today, Jesus is still today, moved by compassion when he sees our state. That hasn't stopped. And he means to guide us into that peace. He is the good shepherd. Right? The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. He has come that we might have life and have it abundantly. He's the good shepherd that lays his life down for the sheep. He does not flee when danger presents itself in our lives. His compassion moves him to throw his own life in front of ours. And we see that's exactly what he did on the cross. Where love and mercy meet. He laid it down, his own life down, he said, of his own accord, of his own decision. He wanted to do it because he was motivated by compassion to save sinners that are helpless in those crowds. Jesus, the Son of God who lived the sinless life, died as a substitute on the cross to take the penalty for our sins and to transfer to those that believe his righteousness to us, that we that believe might become the adopted sons and daughters of God, that we might have a place to live, that we might have a place to be known, a place to be loved, a place to belong, where we're no longer helpless, no longer harassed, but we'd be safe and kept. That's all because of the adoptive work of the cross of Christ. He did that of his own accord. That's what makes him the good shepherd that longs to make a flock for his own love compassion. That is the motive of the kingdom of heaven. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like, friends. Full of compassion for sinners on behalf of its shepherd. Jesus comes to live, to teach, to preach, to heal, then die and rise. And then sending his spirit to take up residence in us that we might have a shepherd to guide us so that we would no longer be lost. 
And friends, if this was his reaction some 2,000 years ago in cities and villages and synagogues of his own region, what then does he say of the world today? We've already begun to answer that question, but take a look at verse 37. Look at it more closely. We've seen what he's been doing in the earth, teaching, preaching, healing. His motive, we've seen, is his compassion. Thirdly, what is Jesus' assessment of the world in general? Verse 37. The harvest is plenty full, but the labors are few. This moment of compassion leads to Jesus' instruction then on the state of affairs in the world at large. He sees in those crowds a type of preview of other crowds in other places in all the earth. It was true not only, as I've said, of Galilee, but it is also true of Mongolia and Ghana. It's also true of Greece and Guatemala. It's true of China and Morocco and Chile and Iceland and Germany and Hungary and Poland and Romania and Indonesia. Crowds of people harassed and helpless. Sheep without a shepherd. The harvest is plentiful in all of these places, but the workers are few that go into the harvest and bring out the object of the Lord's compassion. Jesus is saying that in the world there is fruit of the gospel. There is a harvest in these crowds. There are people with names, with lives, with backgrounds, family members, hurts and pains, friends. There are crowds of people in every corner of our world that have been taught. But they also have been bought, purchased by the blood of the Lamb at the cross. They're there in the crowds waiting to be harvested. They grow like wheat amidst the weeds and yet they don't know the gospel that has yet to save them. They are living lives of idolatry and ignorance towards the gospel of the kingdom. And yet their names have been written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, Paul tells us. Notice in verse 38, it's his harvest. He's already marked them off. They're already fruit waiting to be harvested. Already purchased by Christ at the cross. And yet there they are still helpless and harassed. Sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sees them. Jesus knows them. There's a harvest, but the labors that he means to use as plowshares are few in comparison. And we don't know why. The Lord doesn't tell us why there's this shortfall of laborers to go and get them. He tells us that wide is the gate. Earlier in Matthew, wide is the gate and and easy is the way that leads to destruction. And many will enter it. And narrow is the way and... Hard is the way that leads to eternal life and few will enter it. And so maybe that's part of the reason there's this relatively few that are going out to harvest because there are relatively few in the world that really love the gospel and the kingdom. Maybe that's the answer. Probably is the answer in some ways. But Jesus says in light of that though, even if there are few labors, there's still a great harvest to be had. There's fruit in the fields of the world, beloved. In other words, while we may be few, we who are in Christ know the good news of God's compassion. We know it. We know the answer. And we know our mission to go be arbiters of that compassion. And so while there may be few, maybe real Christians in comparison to the population of the world, there are still sons and daughters that can go into the fields. But for some reason, there are few even among us that go. You heard Chris pray that. And again, we don't know why. Sometimes we are riddled unto ourselves, aren't we? Maybe some of us don't do it because we're fearful. Maybe we don't go out and get them because of doubt. 
I'm sure for a lot of us, like myself, it's because we'd rather stay near to those that are already harvested. It's easier, isn't it, to live near the threshing floor than it is the fields where the weeds of wickedness so powerfully can wound us. But while we may not know why the proportion of harvest to labors is few, we do know a couple other things here. We do know that there is a harvest and that it's his. We know it's there. He says it. So, for instance, beloved, Ryan and Elizabeth didn't have to wonder if there was any fruit in the fields of Central Asia when they flow over there to move their family there to show the gospel. Diodene didn't have to wonder if there was any fruit in Cameroon when he moved his family there. Alejandro didn't have to wonder if there was any fruit amongst the Latino speakers of Washington, D.C. when he moved his family from Venezuela here. Campus outreach doesn't have to wonder if there's any fruit on the campus of American University. Beloved, you don't have to wonder if there's any fruit in this city because Jesus tells us that the harvest is plentiful. It's there. Circle that word is. It is plentiful. And we know, friends, that it includes a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so while your next door neighbor may not be among the redeemed, friend, the chances are someone in your neighborhood is. Because the harvest of the redeemed is plentiful. We can be sure of that because this is Jesus' assessment of the world. But the other thing that we can be sure of from Jesus' statement is that he means to use his people to go and get them. Now, friends, that's a ravishing reality. You stop and think about it. Jesus means to use other workers to go and reap the harvest of his atoning sacrifice for them. Other workers. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I labored like Jesus did to go and bring sinners home and mine was the reward and mine was the joy in the reward, I wouldn't want somebody else to go and get the reward. I'd want to go get it myself. Right? If I labored really hard to save up for something on Amazon and I went and bought it and somebody told me it was downstairs at the front door, I wouldn't petition someone else to go and get it. I'd want to go down there and get it myself. But Jesus shows his compassion by using his people to go and get the fruit, to share the work. This is the beauty of the love of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus shows his compassion and that he shares the work of harvesting people with us. He not only grants us forgiveness of sins and adoption into his family, but he then employs us to go and find more of our brothers and sisters that he bought out in the world to be his messengers of compassion, to be his uh, ambassadors of his kingdom, born out of a motive of compassion for them. What kindness of the Lord to do this. He didn't have to design it this way. But he did so that we might experience the joy of the seeing the kingdom expand as people repent and believe on Christ as we utter the truth about the gospel. Romans 10, 14 to 15 says, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Christ extends his rule by using sinners who have come to him and been healed, given citizenship to the kingdom. He uses our mouths to represent his heart of compassion to sinners. Can you believe this? Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes how? 
By hearing, from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. And the Word of Christ comes through our lips to their ears and into the believer's hearts, which births faith. Therefore, blessed are the feet of those who preach good news. And we who are in Christ have been given blessed feet and blessed words to speak the compassion of Christ to the nations and to our neighbors. This much we know. We know that, the, that Christ's assessment of the world is that there is a harvest out there, but few are the labors. We know that Christ's assessment of the world is also that he means to use the redeemed to be his hands and feet, to declare his uh, compassion to helpless and harassed people, that they might have a shepherd to guide them. We know that. And so finally, what's the response for us? What's the response of the knowledge that Christ has a harvest out in the world and that the labors are few to go and get them? that he means to use his people. What's the response? Well, friends, the answer may not be what you might expect. At least not in the immediacy. In fact, Jesus' answer to that question might expose a gaping hole in our holiness. It might expose something we value very little. See, if we were standing next to Jesus when he looked at the crowds and said with compassion that the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few, therefore, we'd expect the next words of his mouth to be, therefore, go and make disciples, right? That's what we would expect, right? If I'm standing next to Jesus and he looks at the lawn and says, the grass is really high, not many people to mow grass. Therefore, I'm thinking, go mow the grass. That's not what he says. Instead of calling the disciples to go, which he will, look at chapter 10, he immediately calls them, he calls us, first thing he says, pray earnestly. To send out laborers. Jesus' initiative, after having been moved by compassion for the helpless and the rest, sheep without shepherd, his initiative is not to tell them, all right, now go out and do it. But instead is to pray earnestly for others to go out. That more would go out. Communicating to us the power of prayer, beloved. We put so much stock when it comes to missions and evangelism. We put so much stock in our minds and our strategies and our whiteboard sessions. We put so much stock in our training schools and our books and our learning. And these are good and necessary things. But they are not the primary things. The primary things that Jesus sees to see the harvest come in is to start prayer meetings. To pray. And notice it doesn't just say pray. It gives a descriptive on the prayer. Pray earnestly that God would get more people out. More. Prayer recognizes I can't do it. See, that's the beautiful thing about prayer. Prayer recognizes dependence. Something that we don't think very much we need. We are taught, aren't we, in this society to be independent. A lot of good in that. We need to learn how to be dependent. And prayer is the necessary element that does that. Jesus wants us to be dependent upon him that more laborers would get out into the harvest. And so maybe this is why we struggle to pray. We depend so much upon ourselves and our own industry. Not depending on God and his industry of supernatural resources to train people up and get them out. Our instinct and habit to pray shows our dependence upon God and not ourselves. 
Hudson Taylor, 19th century missionary to China, founder of the China Inland Mission, whose work, by the way, testifies to the harvest waiting in the fields, said that his secret as to why they were seeing all this fruit, his secret was simple. He said this. This was Hudson Taylor's words, this great missionary from the 19th century. What's the secret? He said it was, quote, drawing every need, temporal or spiritual, upon the fathomless wealth of Christ. In fact, on one occasion, Taylor illustrates this. He had one of his co-workers come to him, labors there in China, and his co-worker tells him, i got to go back. My health is poor. i got to leave the mission field and go back home to care for my health. And what was Hudson Taylor's response? His response, after hearing this news that a laborer was leaving the field, his response was to go get a map of China, open up that map right in front of them, gather around the few workers that were left, and then he said, after having looked at that map, having considered that a guy was about to leave, his first instinct was then to look at that map with those few gathered around him and say, have you any faith to join me in laying hold upon God for 18 men to go two by two to the unevangelized provinces? In other words, Hudson Taylor's instinct was prayer. And so they prayed. And they prayed earnestly. Time and again, they prayed, hoping against hope for the answer to these labors, that they would come. And for three years, they prayed with dozens of setbacks, only to have all 18 laborers show up. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' initial instinct upon prayer is telling of the power with which he sees prayer. We value prayer too little because we value ourselves too much. Let us learn to depend upon God who raises the dead, the maker of heaven and earth, to send out more labors. Friends, I can scarcely depend upon myself for, vi- for fidelity to my own calendar. Why would I place my first trust for more labors to spread the gospel in myself and my own industries? Now, let us learn from our master and not just pray, but pray earnestly that he would send more labors to go and get the reward of his compassion. And when we pray for such things, let us pray from compassion for the compassion of Christ to reach others and the joy of Christ. Again, we don't pray from guilt to gain. No, we pray from compassion for compassion to everlasting glory of Christ's gain. Compassion is our motive of prayer as it was in Jesus. And therefore, if you struggle to pray in general or if you're struggling to pray for more labors to go out, it is likely due to the neglect of your soul to appreciate the Lord's compassion to you. And so the task then for you this morning, maybe even in this moment, would be consider how the Lord saw you as helpless and as harassed as a sheep without a shepherd, and he gave it all to you. Think about that today. Maybe take some time to consider all the ways that he's guided you and taught you and loved you and shepherded you and gave you a flock of a bunch of deeply flawed yet gloriously saved sinners to help you on towards heaven. Think about all the ways that Christ has loved you and shown himself to you, taught you, preached to you, healed you. Come to Jesus, friends, as the world, as Jesus does. Harassed and helpless, sheep in need of the compassion of a shepherd to guide them away from sin and idolatry and towards the gospel of the kingdom after your having rehearsed it for yourself. Let the compassion of the gospel drive you to pray earnestly that the Lord would raise up more labors to harvest more of blood-bought brothers and sisters, to bring them in. 
That's our role as citizens of the kingdom. To pray for more labors because of your compassion for Christ and for others. And so, friends, we do that here every Sunday morning. You heard Chris do it in that prayer. He's not just praying. He's praying all of us. You heard him pray for all of those different Every single Sunday, we're coming and we're praying that God would raise up more labors to send them out. Every Sunday morning, we do this. And then the first Sunday of every single month, we have a prayer meeting who's dedicated in part to seeing God send more laborers out. Maybe you need to prioritize that prayer gathering. First Sunday of every month, we take, let's be honest, we say an hour and 15 minutes. It's often an hour and a half. We're trying. But nevertheless, we're praying every Sunday evening, first Sunday of the month, a prayer gathering. You diminish that prayer gathering, you diminish the words of Christ as the necessary means to sending more laborers out. I trust that in our community groups, uh, I'm having Hector lead our community groups. I told him today, all right, talk about the passage, but pray in community group that God would send more laborers out. I pray in your family devotionals. I pray in your personal devotions. You're praying for this. God, please, please send up more. Send more to go get them. And by the way, friend, if you're, if this is not a burden of your soul to pray that God would send more laborers out, maybe you need to evaluate some things that you don't care enough to see more people get this good news. Pray earnestly for more compassion. We're trying to do this. And also we have here members of this church. You have this membership directory. And at the back of this membership directory, not only do you have all these laborers in here to pray for, all right, but you have at the back all these ministries that we support that you can pray for and ask that God would use these different means to get the gospel out. We're trying to resource you towards this end. And then, after having seen the compassion, enjoyed the compassion, received the compassion of Christ and the gospel, praying for others, then go. You'll see that in the very next passage. Look there at Matthew 10. Very next thing he says. He says, pray earnestly. And then, he calls out those disciples and sends them out. He says later, chapter 10, verse 16, he sends them out as sheep amidst wolves. He knows the work is hard and dangerous. Maybe that's why the laborers are so few. The work is hard and dangerous, but it is not, friend, without reward. Most notably to Christ. We get to, we get to be his hands and feet to harvest what he has already purchased. We get to go teach and to preach this gospel. We get to see the compassion of Christ on helpless sinners that need a Savior. We receive it by grace through faith. We pray earnestly for more labors. And then we go ourselves. And guys, this is what every church across the world over is doing. Isn't it amazing to think about that? This is why, by the way, the kingdom of heaven is not of earth. It doesn't need the halls of Congress to advance its mission. It can do it right here. And so here at Restoration Church, we try to give you a few lanes to go do it. Not just pray, but to go do it. There are more places that you can and should go, but we think it best as a church to give you a few lanes, just to know. And so that begins every single Sunday morning. When we have 50 to 70 lost people come in here every single week. Did you catch that? We have 50 to 70 lost people that come in here and we know they're lost every single week. We call it as a ministry, Restoration Kids. People that need to be taught the gospel. You're looking for a way to grow in evangelism? Well, sign up for kids. This coming July, 18 to 21. Vacation Bible School. 
Great way. You want to grow in prayer and evangelism? There you go. I'm sure Lauren could use your help. You can pray for it at the very minimum. You can sign up for it and go be part maybe one day or all the days. We sponsor campus outreach. We have planted Iglesia Biblica Sublime Grassi, still working with them. We work with DC 127. We work with Redeemer's House. We work with our team in Central Asia. We work with the Southern Baptist Convention and the Treasuring Christ Together Network. Those are two wonderful partners that care a lot. Say what you will about them. They care about laborers going. We have a church planning weekender every November here. These are just some of the ways that you can pray and preach the gospel of the kingdom so as to harvest what the Christ has purchased for his glory. And friends, if you don't do any of these, that's fine. Do something. Do something. Just pray, preach somewhere for somebody. Not just now, but always. Maybe set up an alarm on your phone that rings at 9.38 every day. Matthew 9.38. To remind you to pray for harvest for labors to go out into the harvest be courageous pray and preach the gospel to your neighbors and do it all not from guilt but from gain from compassion to that gain of glory for christ and friend if you're one of those needing to be harvested this morning in other words you're one of those sheep without a shepherd you you understand yourself to have offended the king And you've been living for your own glory and not for his. You recognize you are one of those people in the crowds. Friend, let me invite you to Jesus. Let me invite you to the one that looks upon you with helplessness. That you has, he doesn't have helplessness. He sees your helplessness. The only, listen to this, friend. If you're not a Christian and you're wondering, how do I get into this? You have one qualification. One. That you recognize that you're helpless and harassed. That's your only qualification. Christianity is not like every other world religion that demands you to do a bunch of stuff, hopefully clean yourself good enough, and then maybe he'll save you. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is, is you recognize your helplessness. You recognize you're being harassed. You recognize your sin, your weakness, and you reach out to Jesus to save you, and he'll do it. This is the good news. That's why it's news. We don't preach, uh, we don't preach people how to get themselves right. We preach news. It's already been done. Repent, believe upon him, and be found. And come with us as we enjoy the Savior. Beloved, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray earnestly, Restoration Church, to the Lord of the harvest. To send out labors into His harvest. That they may enjoy the compassion of the good and faithful shepherd. Let's do that now. God, how kind you are. We feel our helplessness. We know that we need to be helped. We know that we're sinners in need of a Savior. We know that we're sheep without a shepherd. And oh, the joy to consider that the praise of the nations would make himself known to us. What a joy! you set your gaze upon us and showed compassion to us. How kind you are, God. How good you are. That you didn't save one sinner, ten, but you saved a hundred. I can't believe that you saved a hundred. And you say millions. And you still are. Today, people will be found. Maybe not in this church, but another church. All around the world. 
and a day will come when the kingdom of heaven will not be a spiritual kingdom alone, but it'll be a kingdom in sight and all of its glory. And what will we do but sing praises to the Lamb, the one that saved us and gave us direction towards our heavenly home, the one of whom gave us a family, the one of whom gave us life and love and peace. In him is life forevermore. And we will sing your praises. So until that day, from that compassion that you set upon us, God, please send more laborers from this congregation to our children, to our neighbors, to Central Asia, to the continent of Africa, to the country of China, to hard places that makes no sense unless the gospel is true. People like Savannah that teach us. Give us more, we pray. And if not here, do it more in other churches. Send out labors. You deserve it. The harvest is plentiful. You've made labors. Now we may, may we go get your fruit. Thank you, Jesus, that you make us part of it.